Gangary the Podcast is made possible by the Ashland University Journalism and Digital Media Department. As Ohio's only converged media program, Ashland JDM is training tomorrow's journalists and media creators for media careers in the 21st century. For more information, visit Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department online at ashland.edu slash JDM. Or head to the JDM blog at ashlandmedia.blogspot.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. This is Matt Tullis. This week, I talk with Seth Wickersham, a senior writer for ESPN the Magazine and ESPN.com. He joined the worldwide leader right after graduating from the University of Missouri. While he primarily covers the NFL, he has also covered the Athens Olympics, the World Series, the NCAA tournament, and the NFL and NBA playoffs. We're talking with him, however, because of the long-form literary journalism he has produced for ESPN. He's written about a runner from Kenya who went to college in Anchorage, attempted suicide, and then had to have his feet amputated because of frostbite. He's written about legendary NFL coach Bill Walsh's attempt to write a book that would teach everyone how to coach in the NFL. And he's written about veterinarians who have to put racehorses down after they suffer catastrophic injuries on the racetrack. We're talking with Seth about two stories specifically. In Awakening the Giant, Wickersham writes about legendary quarterback Y.A. Tittle, who is suffering from dementia. Seth also wrote the story Out Route, which chronicles Atlanta Falcons tight end Tony Gonzalez in the final season of his Hall of Fame career. Seth, thanks for joining Gangry the Podcast. Thanks for having me. Can we start uh, start with uh, start out by talking about uh, the ESPN the magazine story um, about legendary quarterback Y. A. Tittle? Uh, the story was uh, published in July and is titled "Awakening the Giant." Can you uh, first things first? Can you read the first paragraph of that story before we start talking about it? Sure. It's the uh, it's the first section. It's kind of its own standalone section, which was kind of cool. Um, here it goes. You remember the picture. Y.A. Tittle was on his knees in the end zone after throwing an interception that was returned for a touchdown. Swollen hands on his thigh pads, eyes fixed on the grass, he is helmetless and bleeding from the head, one dark scream snaking down his face, another curling near his ear. His shoulder pads make him seem hunched over, resigned, broken down. The black and white photo was taken in 1964, the final year of Tittle's career. It hangs in a silver frame at his home in Etherton, California, not with the prominence befitting one of the most iconic pictures in sports history, but lost among many mementos from a Hall of Fame career. The picture is now 50 years old, and Tittle is now 87. He does not remember much anymore, but that photo is seared in his mind. The blood picture, he calls it. He hates it. Oh, thanks so much. That's such a a great opening uh, to this story and such an iconic photo, too. Can, can you yeah, talk? you know, go, go yeah, ahead. I, it, well, you know, it's interesting just because, um, you know, I, I one of the interesting things about that story was it just helped me think about the photo differently. You know, you you, you sort of think about that photo as like this symbol of somebody being kind of broken down and tired and losing, and actually, like you know, his family and him and, and other people, you know, kind of see it a different way. And after, like, spending all that time with him, I came to also. Yeah, can you can you talk a little bit about the story and how it came about? 
because it, it's it it really presents him in a in a new light. I think. Yeah, that was kind of an interesting process, just because you know sometimes you read a, you know how you come up with story ideas is is like a mystery, and no two are ever the same, really. And this one was just unlike anything I'd ever um, done before, in the sense that. Uh, we had an editor at the time who was from the Bay Area, and um, his parents were friends with uh, Y.A. Tittle's daughter and her husband. And, you know, he just told me that Y.A. had dementia, and nobody knew. It hadn't been written about. So I was out in California. This is in December. I was out there working on the story I did on Tony Gonzalez, they were playing the 49ers. And so I just took a couple, I, I arrived there a couple days early and, um, you know, spent a couple days with the Tittles, not really knowing like, you know, if it was going to be a story, I, you know, I just wanted to get a sense of what was going on. And then when I was there, I found out about this trip that he has, this party that he has in, in, uh, in Cato Lake every year. And, you know, that they were going to try to do it for the last time this year. And that's when, you know, my repertorial lottery bell started ringing. And I was like, oh, my God, I've got to do the story of the trip. And for a while, I thought um, I was actually not going to write about the party itself, but instead just, like, getting there. Because for a while, they, they thought they were going to have to take a train because they weren't sure that YA could fly. But then they ended up flying there, so you know, the arc of my story ended up being the arc of this party and, you know, everything that it took to get to that point and what it meant to them. Right. Uh, it seems there there are a lot of things um, in this story uh, that, that strike me as being, I don't want to say difficult to report, but tricky to report, given... Um, you're dealing with somebody who is essentially a legendary athlete who is now suffering from dementia. You have all these family issues bubbling up. Can you talk a, a little bit about the reporting and, and kind of what went through your mind as you were seeing all of this unfold? I mean, I just wanted to... Everything was secondary to telling the story as realistically as I could. That was my first goal, and I was just... I was not going to run away from what I saw as the story. At the end of the day, the story is really about a daughter who's, you know, coming to terms with the dad that she's known her entire life is not there anymore and wanting, you know, a glimpse of that person again, believing that he's in there somewhere. And I felt that staying true to that was the right way to go. And so, you know, I was taking notes the entire time and, I also, you know, I think that it was important to, I didn't want, I wanted YA to make, to make sure that, like, I guess, you know, maybe he was treated with some dignity in that process also, because it was a little bit of a, um, you know, it was hard to watch somebody so iconic, um, you know, struggle with things, breathing, you know, like that type of thing. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I just felt like that, I could be, I knew that, that everybody's heart was in the right place in terms of the people that I was reporting. Like, there weren't any ulterior motives mm -hmm. or whatever. So, 
you know, at the end of the day, I just wanted to tell it as realistically as possible, knowing that the love that they feel for him, the love that, um, you know, they have for this place was going to come through. And so there'd be kind of built in empathy that I didn't need to try to over explain. Mm -hmm. Did, um, what, why did I, I'm curious, and I don't say why because you might not know why, but the the family and, and Diane especially. Um, do you have any idea why, uh, or, or why they were um, they were open to to having you kind of follow them yeah. around? I mean, I think you know I got there in December and I just had a good rapport with them, and you know they're very nice people, and um, you know I think that they. Uh, you know, I think they just felt comfortable with it, and they kind of just knew that they were taking a leap of faith. You know, I've been around so many people over the years who, you know, are worried about what you're going to say or kind of asking what the story is going to be as you're doing it. And, you know, they just kind of lived their life. And, um, you know, Diane would say, you know, I don't even care what you write. Whatever you're going to write, you know, I want to keep in touch with you, blah, blah, blah. But... You know, I knew that she did care, and it was funny that, you know, the story came out, and she didn't read it. I want to say she didn't read it for weeks after it came out. I think that she was on some sort of family vacation and surrounded by grandchildren and then traveling, and I think she had to be kind of emotionally prepared to read it. Um, So she was inundated with all this feedback from people for a story that she hadn't even read. Um, and, you know, then she finally did read it. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think they just kind of took a leap of faith with me. And, um, you know, I appreciated it, uh, you know, greatly. Mm-hmm. What the, There's a scene uh, in the story where, where Diane is standing at the lake. And she and I think I'm assuming she says to you, you're witnessing a family tragedy. Mm-hmm. What was yeah, that? It was tough. I mean, it was when I sort of. You know, one thing I tried to do in the story in each section was, you know, each the first three sections had a very specific purpose. They were introducing YA. The first one was introducing YA as the reader probably knows him, which is through that picture. The second section was introducing YA as he is now, this man with dementia. And the third section was introducing YA, or, y, you know, Diane's daughter, you know, YA's daughter, Diane. And... In each subsequent section, the stakes of what the party meant were raised just a little bit, and that was one of the more kind of overt uh, moments where you got a sense of what was at stake with this party, that it wasn't just a party, that, you know, there was all these emotions kind of tied into it, and it looked like a disaster because, you know, she was hoping, had done so much work for months helping, you know, preparing this thing and not sure if Wyatt was going to be able to fly. At one point, not even sure if Wyatt was going to be alive when the party, you know, was scheduled. And, you know, I think that she was, she had so many emotions to get into it. And when they landed and and his memory, you know, was not um, getting better. That was one of her hopes was that just being home would help her, would help the memory a little bit. And a lot of people, you know, there's some evidence that it does, some evidence that it doesn't. But, you know, her hope was that it would and it wasn't. And I think she just felt 
exhausted and guilty about feeling exhausted and was kind of wondering what she was doing. And that was a very, you know, it was just a very honest moment that I met, that I witnessed with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what it was like to ride around that town with, with YA? Yeah, it was fun. You know, that's where his memory kind of came alive. I mean, he, um, he started to recognize things. He knew directions very well. He knew exactly where he was going. And he named, you know, grocery stores and, and stuff that, you know, didn't even exist anymore. But, you know, he, 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 that, was, that was when his memory kind of began to bubble up was when we were driving around town. And he was, you know, sitting in the front seat giving directions, backseat driving. Um, you know, it was pretty funny. It was, it was fun to witness. And it was also... It was also hard to witness because we went to his house and you could tell that he was struggling with emotions, but, you know, he wasn't quite sure how to articulate it. Went to his old high school field that, you know, he just, you know, like I said, those memories just, they'd come and then they would just, you know, go, just flush right away. Mm-hmm. And then there, there's that scene where where um, where his daughter, uh, Diane, goes to his old high school field mm-hmm. and... Um, and kind of uh, when that when that stuff happens as a reporter, what are what are you thinking? What are you what are you doing? I'm imagine you're taking notes. <laughs> I mean, I was taking notes the entire time. I was just constantly writing stuff down and um, uh, you know, or recording it at times. And you know, when that happened, we just she didn't know where the high school field was. It kind of surprised me that of all the times she's been back, they've never gone to the high school field because that's kind of where her parents met but they hadn't and and he identified it you know he said here's where it is and it was you know this kind of rundown park there's broken glass everywhere and um you know it was was gated up but you know she was able to sort of like get through the gates and walk up these stairs with all this glass all over it and um you know she got there and she was just like wow and she didn't know what to do, and she ended up just running. Like she took her her shoes off and like ran on the field that um, that you know her her father had played high school football on. That her you know basically where her parents had met, and um, you know it was just a fascinating moment because she just you know it was just such a a sense of a reward for her because again she was just wondering you know what is she doing here mm-hmm. you know is this party worth it and you know, finally, she just had a moment that just kind of made it all um, worthwhile to her. And it was just, you know, as a reporter, I'm just watching it. You know, I wasn't, it was there in front of me. You know, there's that Springsteen line, the poets down here don't write nothing at all. They just stand back and let it all be. I mean, I was just, I was letting it be. I didn't, it wasn't like I was asking anything, really. I was just, uh, after the fact, I asked her what she was thinking about as she was running on the field. But in that moment, she's crying. She's just, you know, her her chest is full. You know, I just I just wanted to document it, and you know, as, you know, as copiously as I could. Right. When you were when you were with them, especially on that trip, um, can you talk? Maybe like, did you do? Was it mostly all observation, or did you do some interviewing as well? Um, or, or was it just being that fly on the wall? It was mostly fly on the wall. Um, you know, because, you know, I would ask questions here or there, mostly for kind of context. Um, but, you know, a lot of it was, a lot of it was kind of, uh, you know, why the very first day, you know, didn't really remember me. 
from when we met in December, which doesn't surprise me at all. And then, you know, he, he'd ask me 15 or 20 times a day what I was doing there. And he'd wonder, you know, he'd say, you want to write about me? Why? And, you know, kind of make some stuff, you know, um, deferential jokes. And, um, he did it just all the time. And then the next day, you know, he remembered my name and then he'd ask again why I was there. And then the day after that, he just remembered a little bit more. And by the end of the trip, he was kind of protective over me. Like he didn't want me driving back to my hotel in the dark. He wanted me to spend the night at their, at their house, um, which I didn't do, but I kind of appreciated the gesture. And so a lot of it was like that kind of interaction, mm-hmm. you know? So, you know, like I said, you know, he's got a memory loop and his, his memory loop would just kind of kick in and restart and you just kind of knew how the conversation was going to go. So a lot of it was kind of like making myself as, le- uh, you know, as, as like unobtrusive as possible to try to avoid his focus turning to me so I could just capture the moments that he was having with his brother or with mm-hmm. the lake or with his daughter or whatever was going on. Right. There's a, the other part that memory loop uh, comes in and is really prevalent in the story is when they're trying to go out to dinner um, at the uh-huh. steakhouse. Um, can you talk about that scene a little bit? Yeah, that was, you know, an interesting scene to witness because, you know, it's exhausting. You know, it's it's exhausting dealing with an older, you know, person who's who's, you know, got dementia and, you know, needs a lot of help, but doesn't quite understand that he, that he needs the help. And, you know, that was a kind of a breaking point for the family. I think they were just exhausted. It had been a long couple of days. Tension was high because the party was the next day. They didn't know how it was going to go. And, you know, they thought that going to this restaurant that he used to love would um, make him happy. And it didn't, but everybody else just kind of wanted to go. And so, you know, I mean this with all due respect, but it was almost like trying to get like a toddler into the car. <laughs> um, it's kind of, I have a young, young daughter and it's kind of what it reminded me of. It's just that like, you know, they were trying to kind of talk him into it and it wasn't working. And then they were trying to kind of con him and it wasn't working. And then they were just trying to use the air of inevitability. You know, we're, we're all in the car, we're going mm-hmm. to see if it would work. And, um, you know, it was just hard because I think the family wanted to get out of the house and all he wanted to do was kind of just sit there and stare at the lake and, you know, have a vodka on the rocks and, you know, just kind of be there. Mm-hmm. And, um, it was just, you know, and then when we did finally get to that dinner, he, he barely said anything all night, which is very unlike him. Mm-hmm. With, uh, this, the story ends, uh, on an up note. Um, can you, t- did can you talk about why, I mean, I guess that's the way the story ends, but can you talk a little bit about that and, and why you ended it that way? I ended it that way mostly just because, you know, that's how it ended, Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, I guess I was just trying to stay true to what happened and, um, you know, what happened was that somehow when they landed, you know, the memory of the trip was still in his mind Mm -hmm. and, that was something that, you know, nobody expected. Because I think that Diane was kind of preparing herself um, to having put in all this work and then knowing that 
you know, it was her memory that it was going to stay with. It wasn't going to stay with his. And, you know, that was, it was almost, it was almost like too much for her to like think about that, that, you know, you could do all this work and like the person you're doing it for kind of won't even really remember. And even like the day after the party, he, you know, at moments he'd kind of know what happened, but other times he wouldn't. And, you know, at the end of the day, I decided to end the story that way because I felt like that, um, you know, this just it just felt the most authentic because that's what he said to her. Mm-hmm. And that probably meant so much to her that the trip wasn't for naught. I think so. You know, I never asked her about it. I mean, I think I could sort of tell that it did. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that to a certain extent, you know, it's just so emotional for her watching her dad change so much that I think she's got some walls up. And so I think to a certain extent, she's always kind of like preparing for the worst and hoping for the best. And that was an example of a pleasant surprise and that he remembered it. Well, Seth, we're going to take a short break. Uh, We will be back with Seth Wickersham on Gangry the Podcast. Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department is the only fully converged and integrated media program in Ohio. JDM majors apply converged skills in practical, hands-on labs using state-of-the-art hardware and software content creation tools. And they do it all alongside award-winning faculty who double as industry professionals. Recently chosen as Ohio's best non-daily student newspaper, The Collegian covers our campus and beyond. Ashland's 3,000-watt radio station, 88.9 WRDL, broadcasts local news, sports, talk, and today's best music to mid-Ohio and to the world on WRDLFM.com. Meanwhile, AUTV20 brings campus news, sports, and events to life in more than 12,000 homes. Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department, creating converged digital media professionals for the 21st century. Find more information and apply today at ashland.edu slash JDM. This is Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. We're back with Seth Wickersham of ESPN, the magazine, and ESPN.com. We've just uh, talked with Seth about his story on legendary quarterback Y.A. Tittle. Um, I want to talk now about a, a story that you that you had published earlier this year on um, on legendary NFL tight end Tony Gonzalez. The story was titled Out Route. Um, can you give a brief synopsis of that story, and and then we'll go from there? Yeah, well, the idea was just, you know, you had this interesting circumstance where, you know, you had this legendary player who never played in a Super Bowl, and he'd almost retired a couple times, and always, you know, in the end of the day, ended up coming back. And he decided to come back for, you know, one more run. And, you know, with the expectation that they were going to be in Super Bowl contention. And so, you know, here's somebody that I knew a little bit, not not that well, but, you know, we knew each other. And um, just from covering him over the years. And I just thought it would be interesting to get a glimpse into just what that, what that is like. And, um, you know, that I knew Tony helped a little bit, but at the end of the day, I just kind of wrote, you know, him a letter saying exactly what I wanted to do. And it was very easy. And, um, you know, so 
in August or July, I can't remember exactly when, but I just sort of, that was my first trip, but I sort of set off to, you know, capture the year as authentically as I could. And my expectation was that I would be visiting him a lot more as the year went on and the playoffs are getting closer, but because of the way the year went, it ended up being a lot more intense than I thought. And that obviously surprised both of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was. Uh, it's so hard to get close to professional athletes, uh, you know, and really um, any type of celebrity or anything nowadays. So, you, how did you manage to get the access to Gonzalez that you got? You mentioned you you wrote a letter to him. Can you talk about the process after you sent that letter? Um, you know, it was just kind of waiting for an answer and making sure that he understood what I wanted to do and what he was in for. Mm-hmm. Um. And, you know, he did, and, you know, he's he's one of the more kind of media-friendly, you know, he gets it. He, you know, he's one of the guys that's sort of known for being more honest than uh, a lot of players. And so, you know, I, I guess as soon as he understood what he was in for, I felt really good about it because, um, you know, I felt like that he was engaged and that the type of story that I wanted to do could actually work out. Because, you know, he was going to get sick of me at some point, visiting him and asking him annoying questions, whatever it was. And, um, you know, that he knew what he was in for and that, you know, I thought that, like, it had a chance to really work out and be something cool. Mm-hmm. The story in your head when you first pitched it or when you first had the idea was, to kind of follow him along in this run-up to the to playoffs in his final season. Um, how did what actually happened in the season affect you as a reporter and kind of how you um, uh, tackled the story? Well, it was weird. You know, they lost their first game of the season, and then all of a sudden, you know, I'm there for the second game and there for a couple of days, and they won. So he was feeling okay. And then... I can't remember exactly how many they lost in a row after that, but they kept losing really close games. And I, I realized, I, I, you know, I kept coming to them also. I think I went, I mean, I might have been there in Atlanta um, every week at some point, maybe every other week and other times. It was a lot of travel to Atlanta. But um, I think that, I had to be there because it looked like their season could just completely fall apart. And I had to be there to witness it in the event that it did. And that was weird because he was not expecting it to to go that way. And I wasn't expecting it to go that way. And as a reporter, I had to be there to capture it as honestly as I could. I also like, didn't want to irritate him, you know, and, and, um, you know, he was essentially the arc of the story went from, you know, how close are they going to get to the Super Bowl to what, how do you handle it when, like, your dream is completely coming apart at the seams and, like, you know, it's, you know, you, it's, it's over in a sense before it began. And, and to his credit, I mean, he never once was like, maybe don't come this trip or whatever, you know, he, every time I was there, I was with him and we were hanging out and he would talk about things openly. I kind of almost became at one point, I kind of felt like a a counselor to him in some ways. 
Um, and he knew that one of the things that we had as a deal for the story was that he, I was not going, you know, everything was going to be embargoed until the story came out. I was not going to tweet mm-hmm. things that he said or, you know, everything was, was in my notebook until the story ran. Mm-hmm. And so I think he felt like he could be really honest with me. And so, you know, he was honest about like what was going through his mind during this time. And, and he let me witness it. And that was just, that was another, you know, that, you know, the story was full of surprises in the process of reporting it. And that was a pleasant surprise. And that when the, when it became clear that the story wasn't going to be what we all thought, he didn't shut it down. He right. could have, he didn't. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that. And, and it seems like he just step, kept being open. How important do you mm-hmm. think it was to have that agreement in place with the, this is staying in the notebook until the story runs. Because I could imagine, especially, you know, ESPN is so big in breaking news and everything um, that it, it would maybe be hard to convince somebody that, yes, this is actually going to happen. I'm not going to put this stuff out there. I'm not going to kind of run you over, yeah, you I know. Think, I think it was important. Um, but, you know, I, he never mentioned it. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't like he... Know, looked at me and said, you're not printing this, right? You know, I think that, you know, we just sort of understood the rules that we were playing with and it never really was an issue again. And, you know, I think he just felt like he could be comfortable with me because I witnessed so many, you know, you witness, um, once you experience something with someone and you kind of earn, you know, you, you they trust you, it just opens up more and more to see. And so, you know, one of the early moments um, that I was with him was when they lost to the Patriots. And, um, you know, after the game, he was three and he was trying to kind of play it cool, but everybody could tell that, like, this season may seriously go down the drain. I mean, I think they lost, they were losing key players and they were losing close games and the, the type of team that they had just wasn't the type of team that Gonzalez thought they were going to have. And after the game, he saw Matt Ryan. He goes, you know, he said, Matt's an excellent quarterback, but he's not elite. He's this close. And he knew the type of buzzword that elite is and how it can set off, you know, the the people who talk about football for a living. And, you know, that was something that I wasn't going to tweet or or run with or whatever – um, and, you know, I think that he just appreciated that and, and, you know, that then it became, you know, how frustrated he was about the losing and trying to figure out what to do. And then it became the trade deadline and, you know, nobody knew that he really did want to be traded. And so, you know, once, once you kind of clear that first hurdle, the rest of it was pretty easy. Right. He, I mean, you're really good at the, a lot of the stuff that I've read by you, uh, you're really good at creating these relationships with the people you're talking to, um, and it it ends up benefiting you as the reporter. Can you talk a little bit about? Do you have like a a philosophy when you're going into a story, or just as a reporter, you know how you go about building these relationships with these people who they're giving you a lot of stuff. Yeah. No. Thank you. It's really nice of you to say. Um... You know, I just think you try you, 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 you try your best to be straight. I think that people I think that people kind of understand the game 
a little bit. And, you know, I think that they appreciate honesty. Um, you know, it's kind of like that famous scene in Swingers where Trent, you know, is talking about, um, he's trying to advise Mikey about how to kind of get his game back. And Mikey's trying to be the nice guy. And Trent's just saying, you know, just be honest and let him know what you're after. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And, you know, so I think to a certain extent, the best way to always do it is to be as upfront as possible about what you want to write about. Now, sometimes that's a little tricky. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and sometimes you don't often know exactly what it is you want to write about, and you kind of discover it during the process. And so things change a little bit. So you, sometimes, you, you know, you never want to write a letter asking for access and then have to eat it later. Mm-hmm. And so, to a, you know, I think that, like, you want to be as upfront about what makes you curious about this subject as possible and then um you know just kind of stay true to whatever it is they think the story you know will be um or whatever you i'm sorry whatever you think the story will be by engaging them on the subject mm-hmm. and you know often that's kind of the most contentious thing in their life or whatever it is but you know once they again once you sort of clear a trust hurdle or you're able to engage them on a way that's different than a lot of people have. It's not that hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember I did a story years ago on this guy, Albert Hainsworth, and he had kicked somebody in the head during a game, and he was suspended. And so I was spending all this time with him when he was suspended, trying as he was trying to like sort out his anger management issues or whatever. And um, we stayed up late at his house one night going through what happened when he – kind of literally went in, literally went into a, br- a blind rage and flipped out um, and kicked this guy's helmet off and then kicked him twice in the head in the middle of the game. And, you know, that was a very, you know, that was a very tricky situation. And I remember I asked a question in the middle of it um, when he had his foot raised, when he was telling me when he had his foot raised, I asked, you know, what were you trying to accomplish in that moment? And, um, you know, out of context, if I had just asked him that question, um, you know, he might have lost it on me. Mm-hmm. But because we were in the moment together and because he was kind of navigating me through his psyche, you know, it was perfectly appropriate. And I ended up getting, like, a great answer. And mm-hmm. so I think that, like, you... You know, you earn some trust by listening and just by asking a lot of questions that, um, you know, show a genuine curiosity. When uh, when you sat down to write the Tony Gonzalez piece, what was um, what did you think the the theme was? I mean, what were what were you what were you shooting for in terms of this is this is what the story is about? Um. You know, I think that it was a subtle theme to a certain extent because um, I think, you know, at the end of the day, the story was about the agony of walking away. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, I ended it on that particular note where I think that, you know, nobody knew whether or not he was going to stay away. And even, you know, a month ago, he was doing interviews saying that he'd still consider coming out of retirement. And so at the end of the day, that that's what it was about. And... um you know, when I first started started reporting it, I didn't quite think it was going to be that way. But, um, you know, that's what it was about. And so then, you know, you look at all your material through that lens. 
And that's why, you know, I began with the first sentence that I began with, um, because it ended up, you know, not being the case. Mm-hmm. I think the first sentence was, he's done. And I intentionally began it that way because um, I wanted to set up this idea that he was over it when, in fact, he wasn't. And, you know, sort of one of the subtexts of it became the the arc of his goals, because he always had these fears about speaking out or challenging people, and, you know, the season was so lost that, that his goals ended up being kind of the story of his season. Mm-hmm. Were, you in, were you in the locker room when he gave his speech at that final game? Or toward late in the season? Uh, in, the, in the hotel. I was not. Okay. Um, so I, um, I had heard that he gave a speech, and I talked. So he had a party after his game that I was at, and so I talked to some people about that speech. Because I, I heard people were kind of raving about it. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, um, I got to find out, you know, what happened. And, you know, I think Tony left for, like, Mexico right after the season ended. And so we, we, call, we talked on the phone for Mexico, and he told me, you know, everything that he had said. And it, you know, was perfectly synced with what other people had mm-hmm. told me that he said. And so... Um, I, I wasn't there to witness that moment, but, you know, I'm not afraid to recreate scenes. Mm-hmm. It's just, I think it's, it's, I, you know, I interned at the Washington Post when I was in college, and Bob Woodward spoke at our, to all of the interns and, you know, told us how to recreate scenes. And Gary Smith sort of, he once said, you know, he goes, you know, um, scenes are overrated. And what he meant by it was just like hanging out with someone you see this with like celebrity profiles. I'm at lunch with this person, right. whatever, you know, I think he was meaning to say like, that's kind of overrated. And I, and, you know, I understand what he, he was getting at with that because, you know, a lot of these scenes are kind of empty and sometimes people's lives aren't as interesting as you think that they'll be. And you're really trying to find those like moments in each story where, you know, sometimes you end up witnessing something that's really meaningful and that's, you know, and really honest. I, I did with the Y.A. Tittle story, obviously, mm-hmm. but sometimes you don't. And you have to figure out a way to recreate those moments and to, um, you know, explain why they were big moments in the person's life. And um, so, you know, that's what I did with that scene. Right. That's, I mean, that's a great scene. And, and it, it's almost where the story all comes together, too. Um, mm-hmm. And I think you're right. You have to recreate scenes because you can't just hang out with somebody and expect all the important stuff to happen right when you're there. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just have to do it in a good and, 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 and journalistically sound way. Um, and you, and you said that, that, that what he told you is pretty much what everybody else had told you. He said, Oh yeah. I mean, there was no, there, you know, there was no daylight, um, in that instance. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, I would have loved to have been there. I tried to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the team wasn't that interested in letting me be there. But, um, you know, I, uh, you know, I, I, I still just felt like I knew it was an important moment. And so, um, you know, I just felt like that for all the reasons you just said, I had to, I had to show it. Right. Did you have to go through the team to get to him or did you go straight to, to Tony? And, and uh, did that cause... No, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, uh, I went straight to him because 
like I said, we'd had a little bit of a relationship. You know, I had his phone number, and when he was in Kansas City, I think we had, like, gone out and gotten drinks one night. Um, and then in Atlanta, I had been there a couple times working on stories and, you know, obviously talked to him in the locker room when I, when I was, um, so, you know, I just went right to him and, you know, the team, they didn't really care. You know, I wasn't there a lot. I didn't ask a lot of the team because I knew that I wasn't going to get in a bunch of meetings, especially when things got tight and, Mm -hmm. you know, nobody knew which way the season was going. Um, so, you know, I would often go to games and I would stay like Monday and Tuesdays. That's, you know, when he would have the most time. And, um, you know, I would just hang out with him. We'd go to lunch and spend three hours at lunch and, you know, do stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And well, the team the team generally knew when I was working on it. I, they didn't do anything to get in the way. They didn't necessarily, like, go out of their way to, to help. Mm-hmm. But they, you know, they got me the people that I needed. And when I, you know, they were, they were cool. That's good. Well, it's a great story and, and, and one that that you don't see very often a really in-depth look at an NFL player going through through a season especially one of the caliber of Tony Gonzalez so well Seth thanks thanks so much for joining the podcast we really appreciate it thank you so much we've been talking with Seth Wickersham a senior writer for ESPN the magazine and ESPN.com we've linked to the stories that we've talked about on our website www.gangrythepodcast.com Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter, at GangryPodcast. That's at G-A-N-G-R-E-Y-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. You can download Gangry the Podcast on iTunes for free. Just go to the iTunes store and search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Gangry the Podcast is available on Stitcher Radio On Demand. Stitcher is an award-winning free mobile app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows on demand. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at Stitcher.com or in the app stores. Gangry the Podcast is produced in the studios of WRDL 88.9 at Ashland University and is supported by the Department of Journalism and Digital Media. Our intro music comes from Noah Heyman. Technical help was offered by Steve Cease. This episode was produced, edited, and hosted by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.